Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. This week on the podcast, it is my turn. I have chosen a story called With the Beatles by a Japanese author whose name is Haruki Murakami. And he is known for, first of all, having his work translated the world over, including this version. And I remember sharing a story that he had written in our Facebook group, which you should all join, because he's kind of known also for some of his surrealism. So there's elements of that in a lot of his work. Apparently, I've only read now a couple stories. But uh, I came across this one because I came across the first one. I was like, oh, I definitely need to find another one by this guy. It seems cool to share on the podcast. So I'm going to read a section for you here, probably considered in the first third of the story. By the way, it's called With the Beatles. And when I first read the title, I was thinking about the bugs but that's a different spelling. Uh, It is the Beatles as in the band. So that is important to know. On to the Beatles. A year before I saw that girl was when the Beatles first became wildly popular. By April of 1964, they'd captured the top five spots on the American singles charts. Pop music had never seen anything like it. These were the five hit songs. One, Can't Buy Me Love. Two, Twist and Shout. Three, She Loves You. Four, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Five, Please Please Me. The single, Can't Buy Me Love, alone had more than two million pre-orders, making it double platinum before the actual record went on sale. The Beatles were, of course, also hugely popular in Japan. Turn on the radio and chances were you'd hear one of their songs. I liked their songs myself and knew all their hits. Ask me to sing them and I could. At home when I was studying or pretending to study, most of the time I had the radio blasting away. But truth be told, I was never a fervent Beatles fan. I never actively sought out their songs. For me, it was passive listening. Pop music flowing out of the tiny speakers of my Panasonic transistor radio in one ear and out the other, barely registering. Background music for my adolescence. Musical wallpaper. In high school and in college, I didn't buy a single Beatles record. I was much more into jazz and classical music, and that was what I listened to when I wanted to focus on music. I saved up to buy jazz records, requested tunes by Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk at jazz bars, and went to classical music concerts. This might seem strange, but it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s that I sat down and listened to With the Beatles from beginning to end. Despite the fact that the image of the girl carrying that LP in the hallway of our high school had never left me, for the longest time, I didn't feel like actually giving it a listen. I wasn't particularly interested in knowing what sort of music was etched into the grooves of the vinyl disc she had clutched so tightly to her chest. When I was in my mid-30s, well past childhood and adolescence, my first impression of the album was that it wasn't that great, or at least not the kind of music to take your breath away. Of the 14 tracks on the album, six were covers of other artists' work. The covers of the Marvelettes, Please Mr. Postman, and Chuck Berry's Roll Over Beethoven were well done and impressed me even when I listened to them now, but still they were cover versions. And of the eight original songs, apart from Paul's All My Loving, none were amazing. There were no hit singles, and to my ears, the Beatles' first album, Please Please Me, recorded basically in one take, was far more vibrant and compelling. Even so, likely thanks to Beatles fans' unquenchable desire for new songs, the second album debuted in the number one spot in the UK, a position it held for 21 weeks. In the US, the title of the album was changed to Meet the Beatles and included some different tracks, though the cover design stayed almost the same. What pulled me in was the vision of that girl clutching the album as if it were something priceless. Take away the photograph on the album cover and the scene might not have bewitched me as it did. There was the music for sure, but there was something else, something far bigger, and in an instant that tableau was etched in my heart, a kind of spiritual landscape that could be found only there, at a set age, in a set place, and at a set moment in time. 
So reading that section, I questioned why I chose it because uh, it was kind of rambling in the term in terms of uh, basically being a history of music at the time. But I I definitely picked it for that last paragraph, which I think for me was what kind of set the tone for this story. I wasn't sure what I was reading when I got into it, realizing so quickly that it was going to be kind of about the Beatles. It's very quickly later, not about the Beatles at all. But uh, this is the backdrop for the story. This is obviously inextricable. So it's like he said, like the musical wallpaper almost of the piece. What did you like about the story or did you like it? Oh, I thought this story was amazing. Oops. I thought this story was really good. When I started reading, I was like, oh, this is so long. I'm tired. It's long. It's going to be hard to read. And then playing the part it, of just, <laughs> it just got going and I just kept going with it. It was amazing. I love the way it pulls you along and all the little interesting developments along the way. It's so well done. Yeah. So in the last episode, we talked about the prairie wife, which you chose and how there were like kind of three reveals and that it was done in a kind of exciting almost suspenseful way and in this piece it's almost as if there's like three phases or there's definitely phases where he's telling you about the girl that he remembers and how you know he was always going to be chasing the feeling that he got when he saw that girl in the hallway that day that's why he keep that memory is so stands out for him yeah. and then he kind of talks about why the Beatles were so important and you're just kind of going along not really sure where the story's going to go until it's in scene which is when he tells us that, you know, he's finally dating a girl, not the girl who he has these visions of, but a normal girl that he goes to school with. And he gets trapped at her house when she's not there with her brother. And that ends up being like the crux of the story. We spend the most time at this house and it's just the boyfriend, the narrator and the girlfriend's older brother. And they're having a bizarre conversation and he's always called my girlfriend's older brother or my ex-girlfriend's older brother right he's kept at this weird distance so he's only referred to not by his name but as these other like descriptors and then it feels like he's throughout this whole conversation this like other unknown entity right we don't even like get to know who he is so for me at least i don't know about you i was reading this scene thinking surely it's about to end (laughs) and it ends up being (laughs) like the basis of this like third phase almost and i would argue it kind of like wraps up at the end when he runs into the older brother kind of like modern day and they sit down again and have another conversation and i wasn't sure like what the takeaway of this overall story was so i'm gonna chalk it up to um haruki's penchant for surrealism (laughs) because i'm sure i feel like i'm almost missing something other than the fact that during the sit-down conversation the older brother talks at length about how he has a condition that he doesn't understand very well where there are pieces of his life days or afternoons or weeks almost where he loses all memory and he doesn't know where he ends up or how we don't really know if people that have that you know it it was kind of hard to tell like if this is like a real disease or something that he's like coming up with as a writer yeah later we kind of find out that the disease has miraculously gone away but Haruki is being very meta by repeatedly referring to the ways that we as readers and students participate in literary criticism. So he's kind of winking at you throughout when he says like, now what would you make of that? You know, and what would you make of this? There's a couple of points where he's like, I bet you're assigning meaning to this. And I'm like, well, yeah, uh, am I not supposed to do that? <laughs> so I feel like um, there's some red herrings almost in a sense. Well, there, what the narrator does with uh, his girlfriend's older brothers, he reads him a passage from his, his is a school reader and this and he describes the questions a school reader has. So then he sort he's he inserted one of those 
questions at the end. What do you think their meeting has or what uh, resonant or what the wording was, but what does it mean that these two characters met again after 30 years? Yeah. I was like, what are you doing? So it says, <laughs> yeah, this is literally the last sentence of the second to last paragraph. It says question colon, what elements in the lives of these two men were symbolically suggested by their two meetings and conversations? It's in italics in parentheses. So it's like, this massive wink to the reader and it's really funny but it just kind of like comes out of nowhere i'm like well do you have a reason then or what is this a real story it reminded me of that um richard powers story uh, to the measures fall they kept introducing those little uh should she throw away the book or or sell it and that kind of stuff oh yeah it was your own adventure thing yeah yeah we talked about the choose your own adventure and how obviously in that situation it was almost more intentional it was like this is obviously how we live our lives right yeah it fit and here it's kind of like well i have one paragraph left haruki (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. And you're throwing this at me now. Yeah, Powers did it throughout where this one's kind of like, it was mentioned as part of the story, as part of the scene. Like, this is what the yeah. book does. And then all of a sudden it's in my narrator's voice. You're like, wait yeah. a minute. <laughs> well, I just didn't have time to process it. And I also felt as if I had read 9,000 words for nothing. <laughs> Your your comments about the three phases, that was something that I pulled out too. I, I, I like that the way the story moves, like this kind of maybe the structure of it, where it seems to find something and it visits it, loops around and it revisits it until it finds something else. And yeah. then it loops back again and revisits that new thing. And that the girl in the hallway holding the Beatles record is like the first thing. So he talks about the Beatles because he's ruminating on that record she's holding and talking and thinking about the Beatles and keeps looping around her and that image of her in the hallway until he meets his girlfriend. Right. And then he's looping around. I think the image that the, the main image that comes back with the girlfriend is them making out on the couch. Yeah. He like spirals off and talks about this. Then he comes back and says, but we'd just be making her making out on the, the couch. And like, he'd add more detail to that scene as they went until the next thing was her brother, that scene with the brother. Right. And then it was like, bam, right in this scene where it takes pages. Each one of these little uh, marked off sections is like a couple of paragraphs. It's like a page long until we get to those scenes where he's talking to the girlfriend's brother and that it lasts. It's several pages long. It just right. keeps going. And the, the brother is even, he's like, well, I should go. And the brother says, yes, several stay for times. another half hour. <laughs> yes. And it, and it felt that way kind of reading it. I was like, did these actors miss their cues or something? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it felt like it was, it was, uh, it was, he was obviously nailing the whole feeling of that meeting in the first place, right? That he was uncomfortable and he wasn't sure what his job was supposed to be there and how long he should stay. But also, I am, as a reader, I'm like, what more can I possibly gain from this conversation that c- keeps going? Yeah, so it did feel like phases. And, uh, I think it's, it was called To the Measures Fall, that the one that we read. Oh, the previous one with the Trees yeah. and Adventures? Yeah, that was. Well, I'm kind of remembering that had, you know, at the crux of it, this was a, wasn't that about the woman that like held on to the copy of the book and kept revisiting the book and the yes. book took on like additional meaning? Well, there's something similar then here in terms of how he's circling back and kind of getting hung up on the memories and like what more he can draw from them. Like these are obviously high points in his life or significant points in his life so like like anyone we we all have like what a handful of ideas or memories that we find ourselves constantly revisiting some of us probably if they're traumatic on a daily basis right and every time you're like reinventing the meaning or coming up with something new probably it's effective I think like you said he's kind of like revisiting stuff but it doesn't feel repetitive it feels like something Mm -hmm. that he 
trying to communicate to us that these are the thoughts that preoccupy his mind. And I think of it as a looping because it's like keyed onto a, a moment in his life that he keeps thinking about. And those thoughts that he has about it keep moving off into different places. So it's definitely not repetitive. They, no. they elicit new thoughts. And like those new thoughts help discover the next thing. So every time you revisit is like, oh, then there's this, then there's this. And that thing reminds me of this other, and then let's move on to the next. To that point, I think we've read two other stories on the podcast that did something similar. The one was uh, the cockroach story. So she tells the story of like laying bait for cockroaches three different times. And it's the third time this is like the longest, most sweeping version, almost to the point where the two were like, not just warmups, but like the backdrop for the third, right? Like you're comparing now the third to the first two. In a similar way, these two phases are setting up the importance for this third phase, right? I need you to understand this girl with the vinyl and I need you to understand the Beatles before you can appreciate the story that I'm really trying to tell you. And then the other one that we read was the one that you picked, which was like uh, the Omelas. Omelas, yeah. Yeah. What was the actual title? The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, Ursula K. Le Guin. Yours was the fifth story by um, Clarice Lispector. Yes. So the Omelas story, I remember kind of discussing how she too was kind of circling her points repeatedly. But I remember at that time we agreed that she was doing something similar but different. She was coming like tighter and tighter to her point. Like she was starting like kind of generally and then she was like kind of like getting closer and closer to what it is she actually wanted to tell you. So you really had to pay attention to realize that it wasn't repetitive. So we've hit like what four stories now that we could say are doing something like this and it's like that's right (laughs) it's tough to emulate it but here's four different stories that are doing it in very very different ways yeah i think this is a technique that works for an idea or a feeling or like a mood that you want to communicate to a reader but you aren't yet able to articulate that yourself i have a story in my mind right now about this that I, that I want to write for our workshop. And like one of the reasons I haven't written it yet that has nothing to do with the fact that I procrastinate is that I haven't yet articulated it for myself, you know? Yeah. And I'm realizing it's not going to be this plot that comes to me. It's going to be probably a rumination. And I, now I feel like a broken record because we've definitely talked about this in other episodes, but there are stories that can be the rumination. It can be the writer trying to figure it out on the page. And that oftentimes is as exciting as the... A polished narrative where we're spoon fed this realization. There's something enjoyable about like realizing it or coming to terms with it alongside the writer. I think Alice Monroe's voices, we talked a little bit about that because in that oh, one, yeah. there was a line in there where she talked about if I were writing this as a story, I wouldn't have included that dress or something yes. like that. And we talked about how I think you specifically talked about that the writer wrestling with the memory is part of that story, is part of figuring it yeah. out. Yeah. That sounds familiar because, yeah, I don't remember what exactly I would have said for that, but I do remember that conversation now that you say it. And I wrote a story like that once because I had like seen other people do something like it and I didn't like completely pull it off for the group, but I'm still so in love with the idea because I think that's what we're naturally doing as humans all the time. When we do have these things that we consistently revisit, we're struggling with something or we're grappling with something. And wouldn't it be interesting to just like address it before we've figured it out. Yeah, sometimes I worry that if I stick with the writing group for too long and submit too many stories, they're going to start putting together patterns about oh, yeah. my psyche. Oh, they've already <laughs> done that with me. Sometimes they'll read my stuff and be like, Christine, there's something you're not telling us. And then they'll be like, you, I mean, the author 
Yeah. <laughs> and we have to remind them it's not a therapy session. That's right. So what else did you like about this one? I liked everything about it. One of the things, and this is, it's halfway a dumb comment, but I have to say it is I like that it was Japanese. Yeah. It wasn't American. It wasn't familiar in English. I liked that it was set in Japan. Obviously it's translated. Obviously it's written by a Japanese writer. There's something about reading something that is from a different culture. Yeah. That wasn't written by an American trying to place it in Japan or something. Yeah that too. Right. And so all of this introduction that we get with the Beatles, it's then not just, like I said, some kind of retelling of their top hits, but it's written from a completely different like cultural time and place. And that that also adds something to it. This is a guy in Japan who you haven't thought of as being a Beatles fan. And he admits he's not a huge fan, but he was fully aware of them. He couldn't help it. Yeah. And here he off like their whole discography like years later because it's committed to memory so that in and of itself is just like an interesting kind of backdrop and i don't know you know i'm not i don't know much about japanese culture but i don't know how many of the readings that are in the reader were made up or are real right. if the reading he read to the elder brother was was real but just like that kind of stuff those details it's fun to be in those places when you're reading it's to like explore something new and different right so I want to talk about the ending. <laughs> and by the ending, I don't mean those last couple paragraphs, but the final scene. What happened to her at the end? Yeah, yeah. So spoiler alert again. We just can't really discuss these stories, I don't feel like, unless we like talk about what happened. I love talking about what happened. I mean, it's part of the arc of the story. It's Yeah. It's part of why it's good. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so by the end, after hearing like this third phase, which we described as that sit down with the brother, the older brother, our narrator as an adult, it feels present day. I don't think it's present tense though. He runs into the older brother again, like in the middle of a crowded city and he doesn't remember the guy's name. And I don't even think this guy remembers his name, but he shouts out to him and he's like, Hey, aren't you my sister's ex-boyfriend? And he's like, well, it depends who your sister is. And he, <laughs> he reminds her him of her name and I'm going to butcher it, but is it Sayoko? And he's like, wow, I can't believe we're running into each other. They banter for a second there while they're standing I think but then the older brothers basically tells the narrator like do you have a second like let's sit down and they revisit the conversation that they have which is the only history they have together can you imagine seeing someone and being like do you want to rehash the 20 minute conversation we had and obviously this was like an hour and a half or two hours that he was at the house but this was one conversation obviously for both of them though they were willing to kind of sit down and do that so it was significant they had both thought about this if only for the sense the fact that it was bizarre right? This is something that stuck out to them. If, if it wasn't meaningful, it was bizarre. So they sit down and the older brother tells the narrator that his sister actually died a few years ago. She killed herself. <laughs> and then he kind of ends the interaction by saying, yeah, you know, I'm cured of my memory lapse thing, but my sister, I think she was always fondest of you among her boyfriends. And he says too, I thought it was kind of nice. He's like, this might be a burden for you to know, but I think she really liked you. And it's obviously a little bit of a burden because this guy is now married and has his own kids and tells us at one point in the story that when he broke up with that girlfriend, it was at the top of a mountain and he had to take the little tram thing down and she drove away and left him there and it like didn't end well. And he kind of says that for him, it was because there wasn't anything long lasting with her. And he kind of refers back to that Beatles girl in the hallway and how like he didn't hear the music with this one, right? Like he liked her well enough, but there was that spark of something he had been chasing since he saw that girl in the hallway that he didn't feel with this chick. 
Oh, so it was like this gut wrench kind of conversation, but he doesn't seem to have like this overt reaction to it. I don't know how you felt by the end of the conversation. No, he doesn't have an overt reaction. You're right. In that way, we are not told what to... If a character has an, has an emotional reaction to something that we live through with the character, then that's kind of like the author telling us, here's how you should react to this. Right. Here, we don't get that. We're kind of left as like, okay, what do I do with that? And, right. you know, part of that is like, that's what lingers with you a lot of times when a story is those kind of unresolved issues. You have to think about and like, what do I do with that? And that's sometimes the power of good stories is you're not sure where you're supposed to go with it. So you keep thinking about it. Yeah, I I guess part of what you're supposed to wonder is our narrator is telling us the story of his life and how seeing that girl with the album was foundational somehow, right? Or it set the kind of tone for him going forward in terms of love. And then he can't help but think about his ex-girlfriend having been on some similar path that he probably did or didn't know about and coming up empty. And that's like why she killed herself, you know? It seems almost like he's comparing their two trajectories and like assigning meaning that way to her death. And even to this brother's trajectory where he suddenly is cured. And he talks about how when he first met him, he said he looked like an athlete who hadn't trained in a while and put on some weight. He was kind of bigger and sloppy with his hair and his clothing. And now he's got this like tan. I think he described it as like a biker's tan or something like a specific type of athlete now. And he like looks good and healthy and handsome. So like he found whatever he was chasing too. Yeah, I guess I started reading the story thinking it was going to be a love story. And then that question that we read in italics, what elements in the lives of these two men were significant? Right. It's like, oh, I guess it was a story about these two, you know? Yeah, he mentions that he was, you know, cured of his condition ever since that conversation they had. He never had another uh, memory lapse. And uh, the narrator asked him, oh, I'm glad to hear that. So you didn't wind up bashing your father over the head with a hammer, which is something that the girlfriend's brother had mentioned being a worry. And he said, you remember some dumb things too, don't you? <laughs> he said. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that conversation, obviously, if it was a turning point for the condition, he he was probably suffering for. And if he was worried over those things and like his whole rest of his life is open now because he's no longer having them. So that conversation becomes really important for him too. Yeah. And I guess in the paragraph, in these last two paragraphs, uh, uh, Haruki kind of touches on this, you know, he acknowledges that these two men have nothing in common other than the fact that they both wound up a certain way. And that's something we all have in common with each other, but we just don't talk about it necessarily. <laughs> I don't know. This one like kind of stumped me at the end. Like I liked the whole thing, but I didn't have this like definitive feeling, I guess, that I was left with or what happened exactly. You know, the last paragraph where he brings back yeah. the, the girl, he's like, I never saw that lovely young girl again either. The one who was holding the LP with the Beatles. Sometimes I wonder, it's that that's the kind of capstone paragraph you'd expect from a story that featured that character, where that character was the most important thing, or it's kind of like the author's last statement on the theme of the story would be that paragraph, except that character never appeared again, obviously, and the story went in a different direction. But now to be reminded of it at the end, you're like, oh, wait, so how does, why is that being brought up again? What is the uh, significance, the, the connection between that and what actually did happen? Right. It's kind of a suggestion of where to take it, I think. Yeah. I mean, I just, like I said, interpreted it as her being the representation of what he thought was going to be his ideal partner. This this is like his introduction to like the AMP gas station story. Like 
that's the equivalent of that cashier girl with the Beatles album. Yeah. I mean, he's going to think about these girls in their bikinis coming to the gas station every day, like as his defining sexual moment. Similarly here, like this is a girl literally running out away from him and he never sees her again, but he thinks she was perfect. And that's like his pedestal, right? That's where he's making everyone else try to, he's holding everyone else to this girl in a way, but she's ever elusive to the point where he's kind of wondering, was she a vision? Is she still running down the hallway even now? Like, is what we want always out of our grasp or even attainable or real? Yeah, is it real? Is it real would be a good takeaway. I'd be happier if that was driven home somehow, you know? Because that I can understand. Because, you know, is the happiness of the ex-girlfriend real? You know, I mean, she killed herself. Was she Was she ever happy or was she always, was she just depressed? Or, you know, like, what was her situation? And then with this older brother, did he really have this mental illness that made him forget things or what was really going on here did the narrator really hate the beatles <laughs> were the beatles real so do you have a takeaway for this one well my takeaway is just back to the thing we talked about or the structure of it where it loops around this three kind of ideas the main thing that i would take away from that is, you know the looping structure is a thing that is probably a good thing to take away too but i think my takeaway would be not merely the looping thing but the idea that as you're kind of revisiting this thing and you're kind of looping off and going on kind of tangents to come back to it again you make a discovery that then leads you into the next loop sure the next set of loops around a new thing and i like that idea because this story the way it unfolds is you can't predict it you can't predict what's going to happen right. based on what's happening a lot of stories you know there's like a cause and effect trail where you can be like, right. okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen because you know what human beings do. And right. then maybe a surprise along the way. But this one, because it's memories and there's so much wrapped up in that, but everything that happens new is kind of a discovery. It's not something that's necessarily going to be predictable. And I think that'd be a, that's a nice, kind of a cool thing to think about as far as structuring a story is making discoveries and allowing the reader to discover the thing with you. Right. Yeah. Cause that's the, pleasure of it not being told what the discovery is but to kind of come to it on your own as well well this kind of piggybacks off that but i think one way that you might be able to come up with a story that allows you to use that structure would be to think of things in your head that maybe you've wanted to write about but haven't yet figured out or pegged down and how are those things maybe related it could even be like two things it doesn't have to be like three phases but there could be like two things in your past that you consistently revisit or worry about or struggle with, or maybe it's a memory you're always trying to recall. Like whatever these things are, maybe you can come up with a connection or force one or make up two of these kinds of things that you've reflected on over the years and see how you can maybe draw them all into a story. We talked in our last podcast episode about what Curtis Sittenfeld's process must have been like for that piece. And we're always speculating, but it's fun to speculate because oftentimes there's like a very strong plot but then there's also a very, very, very strong scene. And you're wondering, well, which came first? It couldn't have been both at the same time. Where was it? And you're always wondering how the idea starts and then what needs to be added on to make it as good as it is. And I think for a story like this, you could definitely start with two kind of hazy concepts for even you as the writer. And then to kind of, like you said, help the reader discover the meaning alongside you as you write. It's an interesting problem to make a, uh, because of what you write, you know, you always write it and then you rewrite it and you hone it and you make it then it's a thing and then the reader reads it it's not like you can react to the reading so you you're you are actually guiding the reader the entire way how do you make that feel yes. organic how do you make that feel like a conversation without it being a string of rhetorical questions 
<laughs> but what does it mean? That's right. I think one of the ways that it feels organic, because we don't recognize what these stories are until the end, right? We don't know that we're being introduced to three phases, or we don't even know that we're being introduced to three maybe unrelated ideas until we've finished it. So I think kind of the way to do it is not necessarily to tell us that we're trying to discover something, not setting the story up as saying, I'm struggling with these concepts, uh, dear reader, please join me on this journey of discovery. <laughs> it's more like, let me tell you about the Beatles. Okay, you got that. Now let me tell you about this girl that I dated. And let me tell you about her brother. Yeah. Okay, now that we know all that, here's what happened. And you can just kind of like state what you do know. But the fact that you're relating things and the fact that you're kind of separating them is what's setting up the process of discovery, right? It's the juxtaposition, yeah. not just like how you're writing it necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. It's in a macro way, kind of the significant details that we always talk about yeah. where it's not just like whether or not what's on the table you pick the significant items on the table it's what's in the story are the significant items yeah so we could come up with three things right now like a music box that my mother got me when i was born a car crash my best friend in high school and then meeting a girl on the street that i used to go to school with like those are three things i came up with that have nothing to do with anything but i guarantee you that if the prompt was for you to force the reader to discover alongside you why it is these are linked in your head you would just write them separately and just by writing them separately but in the same story that would lend this sense to the reader that I'm paying attention to this and now I'm paying attention to this and what do these have in common the reader's doing the work for you you're just kind of like giving them the puzzle yeah so now we're going to get a lot of like bizarre submissions where it's basically mad lib fiction oh We've boy come up with something really unique don't do that don't <laughs> listen to what I just said all right thanks guys if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.